Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. We're going to continue our series that we started way back three weeks ago called Power as we journey through the book of Acts, and we're in Acts chapter 2. So again, it seemed like forever ago since we started this series because we were out for a week, and last week was kind of in this series, but it wasn't really packaged that way, so it seems disjointed. So let's catch up on what we've already covered in Acts chapter 2 very quickly. So Acts 2 covers the day of Pentecost, when there are about 120 or so followers of Jesus who are gathered together praying, following the command of Jesus to wait for the Holy Spirit to come. So he promised them about 10 days before the day of Pentecost, wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to come, and then you'll be empowered to be my witnesses. So they're praying and waiting. Now, the the Pentecost is a Jewish festival or feast where Jews from all over the region have come to Jerusalem for this Jewish festival. So there are people from all over the area here on this particular day. As the people are praying, the Holy Spirit comes in power, hence the name of our series, and we'll talk about what that looks like today in the next couple of weeks. And the things that happened are so strange, so peculiar, and gets people's attention so much that everyone's looking around like, what is going on? What just happened? And so Peter gets up and gives really his first ever sermon trying to explain what they've just experienced, what they've just seen. And from that, uh, in that sermon, basically, he tells them, hey, this is what Jesus promised us before he left. He promised to send the Holy Spirit, and now he sent the Holy Spirit. And not only, Peter says, did Jesus promise this, but way back hundreds of years before, the prophet Joel prophesied about this moment. He says, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Sons and daughters will prophesy. Old men will have visions. Young men will have dreams. I'll pour out my spirit on every class, every culture, every race, every people in the last days. He said, this is that. We've just experienced the beginning of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And from that sermon, 3,000 people put their faith in Jesus that day. And really, that's the beginning of the movement that is the church. So that was where we started three weeks ago about the promise of power. Last week, we, we looked at the end, the end section of Acts chapter 2, and looked at really um, what power lived out looks like. So sometimes, depending upon your background, uh, you might think, well, the power is a, is a certain spiritual gift, or the power is a certain type of uh, result, supernatural result. Really, the, the real purpose of power, how we live that out, is seen at the end of Acts 2. And it describes who we are as a church. So last week we looked at the, really the, the, what the first century church looked like and what we as the first century church aim to look like. A relational body of believers, a generous body of believers, a missional body of believers that are individually missional. So you're making a difference in your own life, in your own neighborhood, at your own job, as the church together generously makes a difference. And in all of that, we aim to be biblical. So that's last week, kind of a blueprint of who we are. So for the next three weeks in this series, pal, we're going to go back up to the top again. So I was thinking, you know, the the Acts journals that you have, I thought it was going to be so helpful 
it's probably going to be a jumbled mess because I'm going all over the place a little bit here. So you're going to have to do your own notations and figure out where you're going on that because we were at the beginning, now we're at the, bat, now we're at the bottom, now we're at the beginning again for three weeks. So today we're going we're gonna to look at, start really two weeks looking at, or three weeks, looking at the three big phenomena that happen in Acts chapter 2. There are three things that happen that I think we need to spend some time uh, talking about. And so uh, we see in Acts 2, let's read it, and then we'll, we'll look at the three things. So let's read this first, and then we'll get to why I need the fire extinguisher here uh, this morning. So Acts 2, starting at the very first verse, verse 1. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place, Here's what happened. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them, and everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. So when the Holy Spirit comes, there are three signs that show his arrival. We'll spend the next three weeks looking at these three signs. One of them that we'll look at today is more visible. Everyone saw the fire on top of everyone's head in that room. The other two are more audible that we'll get to. Um, so we're going to talk today about the fire. Are you ready? See that? See what I did there? It's simple but effective, and I'm not going to spray you unless, unless you catch on fire. Maybe what I'm going to say is going to be so powerful that I'm going to have to, you know, see. And it, what's interesting, no, I won't get, never mind, never mind. I got enough to cover. I can't get any extra stuff today, okay? So we're, we're going to look at, at the idea of fire in Acts 2, but what we're going to look at is the parallels to the Old Testament, or parallels from the Old Testament when it comes to fire. Because when the people saw this fire, they thought something about it. They, they had some idea about what it meant, or they had some opinion about what it meant, or, or it made them think of something that they already had read or heard about before. There are parallels to this fire from the Old Testament that we'll see that connect to Acts chapter Two. Basically, what we're going to do today is kind of do a, a short survey of fire from the Old Testament and then connect it here to what the symbolic meaning of this physical sign meant. Okay, that's, that's where we're going to try to, to go today. There are two main Old Testament figures that love to play with fire, if you will. Two people from the Old Testament, really a, one person and kind of a duo that worked together for a time in which in their lives, fire was a significant part of their life. It came up over and over again. It meant several things to them. And so we're going to look at that person and then that duo this morning and connect it to Acts chapter 2 and the fire that happened in Acts chapter 2. The first person that we'll start looking at this morning is Moses. You're probably familiar with him. He's a pretty important guy. So a quick recap to get you caught up to where he first encounters this fire. Moses was the son of Hebrew slaves in ancient Egypt, and the Pharaoh in charge had commanded that all Hebrew baby boys be killed. So Moses' mom instead puts him in the basket, floats him down the river for safety, but lo and behold, he is discovered by Pharaoh's daughter. So Moses, who doesn't know until later on that he's the son of slaves, is raised as the Pharaoh's grandson. And so at some point between, really, uh, Acts, uh, Exodus 1 and 2, he discovers as an adult somehow that he's a Hebrew. We don't know how. It doesn't tell us how. But the way the, the language changes talking about him, uh, he says he sees a fellow Hebrew slave being beaten by an Egyptian. And so for whatever reason, he ends up killing the Egyptian slave master who's beating the Hebrew slave. 
thinking he's going to get found out because a couple, at least a couple guys saw him do this and they let him know they saw him. He runs away. So he goes from this orphan baby who's adopted into the kingdom of Egypt to now being a man on the run, a fugitive for his life. So as he's in this land, he marries a woman, he has, you know, starts a new life, he becomes a shepherd. And so the first time that this uh, fire ever becomes a thing for Moses is when he's out with his sheep and he sees this strange light in the distance and the closer and closer and closer he gets to this light, he discovers that it is a bush that is on fire but is not being consumed by the fire. So that's his first introduction into fire. But it's not just, again, that's strange enough, but then from that burning bush comes the voice of God to him. So talk about a strange thing upon a strange thing. This is a crazy day in the life of Moses. But from this experience, God commissions him and calls him to go back to Egypt to rescue and free the slaves in Egypt, his own Hebrew people. And he reluctantly uh, does this, right, uh, initially. So here's the first parallel that I think we can see from this example in the life of Moses to Acts chapter 2. So the fire here um, for Moses was what I'm going to call an introduction of legitimacy for Moses. The, the burning bush experience that Moses encountered was what we're going to call an introduction of legitimacy for him. Because God is showing up in a very unique way here, isn't he? It's not every day that you see what Moses saw. No one's probably ever seen something like that since then. And then to hear God speak to him from this burning bush, it's an introduction to God. Hey, I'm about to do something. And if you think that this experience is unique, you just hang on. This, you ain't seen nothing yet, Mo. And so he commissions him, he introduces him, and tells him, hey, you're going to be a part of what I'm about to do. It's something brand new. So it's an introduction, but it's also legitimacy. Because that is just the first sign of many that Moses not only sees, but is a part of. Actually, when we get into Acts chapter 3, if you, you can, you know, make a little note there. We get, when we get there in a few weeks, we're going to come back to this moment or the moment just after the burning bush and see some of these other signs in the life of Moses. Even just his wooden staff becomes a huge sign that furthers, I can't say it, the legitimacy of what uh, God is telling him to do. And then the ten plagues that God brings upon the nation of Egypt, right? That's further legitimizing what God has started in this burning bush. So it's just an introduction to legitimacy for the life of Moses. And it's the same thing in Acts chapter 2. When this fire comes into this room in Acts 2 and these little flames set upon the top of everyone's head in there, it's an introduction again to the Holy Spirit who is announcing, hey, I'm about to do something new again. It's the same type of introduction that God uses through fire in both these occasions. And just like Moses had further signs to legitimize the first one in fire, as you read Acts chapter 2, there are signs after signs after signs that further legitimize what started here in Acts 2. Because yes, it got their attention, but it's also kind of weird. Like if we're honest, what happened in Acts 2 is weird, it's odd. It's unusual. No one's ever seen anything like that before. No one's ever even heard of anything like that before, and yet they've just seen it and heard it and experienced it. They don't know what to do with that. But that parallel to Moses and the burning bush, I think, helps to set the stage for what God then does. 
So again, the fire starts there for Moses, but fire shows up again in his life with these other signs. So he reluctantly says yes to God. He goes back to Pharaoh and says the famous words of Charlton Heston, let my people go, you know. He probably had his rifle on him too. I don't know if he did, but maybe, you know. So then Pharaoh decides, I'm probably not going to let a million free slaves go just because Moses tells me to. Not, not going to do that. And so then God sends the ten plagues, uh, all sorts of, you know, flies and boils and blood to water and all the crazy kind of stuff. The last one, the, the death of the firstborn, is the one that really moves Pharaoh's heart. And he finally decides, okay, get out of here. Take your people with you. Take your God of plague with you and go worship him. Do your thing. Leave me alone. So the people are starting to go on the move here, right? They're starting to, to march out of Egypt, and they're marching toward the Red Sea, toward the land that they believe God has promised them. But after they've been gone for a little while, Pharaoh decides, man, it's really quiet around here. I mean, there's not a lot of work getting done. Hmm, maybe I should go back and get those slaves because I, re- I really want stuff to get done. So he sends his army after the people who have just left Egypt. So the people of God are, are between the Red Sea and Egyptian army. Exodus 13, 21 and 22. The Lord went ahead of them. He guided them during the day with a pillar of cloud, and he provided light at night with a pillar of fire. This allowed them to travel by day or by night, and the Lord did not remove the pillar of cloud or pillar of fire from its place in front of the people. So the sign continues, and what we see here is the first ever GPS, God's positioning system. Okay, it's what this pillar of fire is for the people. Because when you read, it says God never removed it from them. Now, they will, after this moment, they've just now left Egypt. They aren't even anywhere across the Red Sea, anywhere in the wilderness yet. But for the next 40 years, this pillar still leads them. Because as you, as you read, they just seem to know when to stop moving and make camp for a while. They just happen to then know when to pack up and start traveling again. They just happen to know where to go in the middle of a desert. Not exactly, because this pillar of cloud and fire was always leading them. Um, That's really the next parallel to Acts chapter 2, is that just like the pillar of fire gave the people guidance, the Holy Spirit in Acts 2 gave the church guidance. And in the same way, it says here that the the pillar of fire was never removed from them. Uh, In John 14, verse 16, Jesus promises to send the Holy Spirit, and he says, the Holy Spirit who I will send will never leave you. Just like the pillar of cloud and fire never left them while they were wandering for 40 plus years in the desert, Jesus says, the Holy Spirit that I'm going to send you that came on Acts 2 will never leave. And then the fire in Exodus, the pillar of fire, gave the people guidance. And that's, again, what Jesus says the Holy Spirit does. In John 16, 13, he says the, the Spirit will guide you into all truth. He makes this promise, this guarantee to the people. And then when the Holy Spirit comes, the rest of the book of Acts, we see guidance from the Holy Spirit. He leads, the, he leads the church where to go, what decisions to make, what things to do. He over and over again, we already saw it in Acts chapter 1, the first big decision that they had to make, even though the Holy Spirit hadn't come yet, he leads them to replace Judas as one of the apostles. He's already led them in a big decision. He's already guided them in a big decision, and that continues. Whether it's visions or dreams that guide them, they're from the Holy Spirit. 
we'll get to this later on, but even in Acts chapter 8, we mentioned it previously, Philip is led directly by the Holy Spirit to talk to some random guy who's reading a scroll. And he comes to find out he's from Ethiopia reading the prophet Isaiah and doesn't know what it means. The Holy Spirit directly guided him to this person. And then after this man is saved and baptized, the Holy Spirit literally transports him from where he is to another town north of where he is. The Holy Spirit literally took him up and guided him where he wanted him to go next. Now, I don't, I don't think that maybe he's going to do that all the time for us. That'd be really cool. Like, hey, I can, you know, it's like Star Trek. I can just transport myself from place to place, you know, beat me up, Holy Spirit kind of thing. But it, it happened there in Acts chapter 8. And then when you see the, the ministry of Peter, the ministry of Paul, they're led, they are guided, not because they know what they're doing or where they're going, but because they're being guided by the Holy Spirit. So this pillar, we, we kind of just read it again, but we'll, we'll read it here uh, as well. So the pillar of cloud and fire have, have led them to where they're going to go, but now they're stuck between a rock and a hard place, right? They're stuck between the Red Sea in front of them and the army behind them. So then here's what the pillar of fire does. Exodus 14, verse 19, again. Then the angel of God, who had been leading the people of Israel, right, in the pillar of fire, moved to the rear of the camp. The pillar of cloud also moved from the front and stood behind them. The cloud settled between the Egyptian and Israelite camps. As darkness fell, the cloud turned to fire, lighting up the night. But the Egyptians and Israelites did not approach each other all night. So again, so far, this pillar has been in front of them, guiding them where to go. Now that they're stuck, the pillar moves behind them. You ever felt that way in your life before? I feel like God's leading me where he wants me to go, but now I'm stuck. And then, wait, wait, God, why, where are you going? Where are you going? Where are you going? Like he goes to the rear of the camp, and they're like, wait, I thought we were in the right spot. Are we doing a U-turn? Did I make a wrong turn? And it's just in this, sometimes maybe that's true, but in this moment, he's got a different plan in mind. He moves to the rear to them because the, the, next, the next parallel here from Exodus to Acts 2 is that the fire here protected the people. It was their protection. So he moved to the back, this pillar, to basically give them a buffer zone between the Israelite army that, or the Egyptian army that's coming toward them. It gives them extra time and space to figure out what we're going to do, what's God going to do. It, he gives them that wall of protection with this wall of, it's, it's the first ever firewall, okay? So if you're in IT, you know what that means. Uh, and if you don't, that's just for a couple of you, all right? Anyway, but God was protecting the people with this wall of fire. Then move down to verse 24, Exodus 14, 24. Here's what happened next. Just before dawn, so this is all night long. This wall of fire is protecting them. Just before dawn, the Lord looked down on the Egyptian army from the pillar of fire and cloud, and he threw their forces into total confusion. He twisted their chariot wheels, making their chariots difficult to drive. Let's get out of here, away from these Israelites, the Egyptians shouted. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. This is sort of the, so there's protection, and then there's, the Egyptians even say, he, their God is fighting against us, fighting for them. It's part of that protection was to fight for them. It struck fear in one of the greatest military forces on the planet at that time. That's the power of the Holy Spirit even working in this strange way. 
And then, because they had this buffer and because they had this time, then, you know, the, the Red Sea split in front of them. They passed through. And then as, then the fire kind of, you know, goes back in front to lead them again. So then the, Israel, the Egyptians are like, this is our chance. Let's go get them. So they go onto the dry riverbed until it's not a dry riverbed anymore. And the water closes in around them and drowns the entire Egyptian army. So God not only was defensive in his protection of his people in this account, he was actively fighting against forces that were coming against them. It was a both and. It was a a shield and a sword type of thing. We see a very similar parallel throughout the book of Acts. So once the Holy Spirit's come in fire in Acts 2, the rest of Acts is really God, the Holy Spirit, protecting his people, protecting his church, preserving his church through a very difficult period of time. Just a few quick examples uh, to zoom through that we'll cover in detail as we move through Acts. But in Acts 4 and in Acts 5, Peter, Peter and John in Acts 4 and then Peter and other disciples are arrested for their faith, for speaking out um, for their faith. But the power of the Holy Spirit that they saw in fire in Acts 2 gave them boldness and strength to withstand persecution, like intense persecution. Like not someone gave me a side eye because I prayed over my lunch at work in the break room, but like imprisoning them for their faith, threatening them for their faith. We see in Acts 14 when Paul gets his ministry started, uh, I think it's in Lystra, the city of Lystra, he's actually drug out of the city gates and stoned with stones, okay? And they leave him. They think he's dead. But then other believers gather around him the next day and he's not quite dead yet. So the Holy Spirit's power is so strong with Paul that after being stoned nearly to death, the next day he gets up and goes back into the city to keep ministering. That's power. That's the Holy Spirit. No one apart from the Holy Spirit is going to do that unless they're a crazy person, okay? He goes back into the town that just tried to stone him to death. That's the power of the Holy Spirit that started in fire in Acts chapter 2. Um, there are other examples that, I, that we'll get to, but so I, w- I won't mention them um, today. But the fire that came in Acts chapter 2 did the same thing that it did in Exodus. It let everyone know, hey, I'm on their side. I'm going to fight for them. I'm going to defend them. I'm going to see them through. They may, you know, they may get touched a little bit, right? They may get burned a little bit, but my fire is going to be more powerful to see the movement through. Even if at times, uh, some of the, like the apostle, we'll talk about it in a few minutes, they didn't make it, right? They were killed for their faith. But the Holy Spirit still preserved them through that time because the movement is still around today, isn't it? So the fire of the Holy Spirit that fought for them is still fighting today. And we'll get there. We'll apply this to us here in just a couple minutes. So there are, there are other occasions in the life of Moses where fire is important. And I could mention all of them, but I'm not because we don't have that much time. Even though it's, I seem like I have tons of time left, I don't. <laughs> so let's move on to the second sort of, it's a do-over. It's a two-for-one type of thing where fire is very important to them and is meaningful uh, to them. And it's the Old Testament prophets, Elijah and Elisha. Fire is a big deal uh, in their lives in a powerful way. So let's start with Elijah. So Elijah comes on at the end of 1 Kings, and he comes at a very pivotal time. Uh, he is called, and it's funny that he's a very famous, one of the most famous prophets, yet he doesn't, there's not a book of Elijah. 
You know, like Isaiah got his own book, and Jeremiah got his own book, and Joel got his own book. Where's, where's the book of Elijah? Well, he's just a few chapters at the end of 1 Kings, but he's still a pretty important guy. And so Elijah is ministering during a very difficult time in Israel's history where there's sort of a wimpy king and a wicked queen working together to bring disaster upon God's people. And he is there at this moment to stand strong and say, this is not going to happen on my watch. If I'm the only one left, I'm going to stand against you for what God says. It sounds maybe similar to where we are today. Maybe we need some more Elijahs in our culture today. So Elijah deals with really high highs and really low lows. Like he literally, fire is important because he literally at one point calls down fire from heaven to burn a sacrifice in front of hundreds of eyewitnesses that this is recorded. And then right after that huge victory where God comes through in literal fire, he's asking God to kill him. So he's kind of an up and down, kind of he's an emotional, he's a human, you would say, right? And so near the end of his ministry, God commissions him with one final thing. There's one more thing I need you to do. And God says, I want you to anoint your successor. I want whatever started in you to continue. So we're going to go to 1 Kings 19 and see where he meets his successor. 1 Kings 19, starting at verse 19. So Elijah went and found Elisha, son of Shaphat, plowing a field. There were 12 teams of oxen in the field, and Elisha was plowing with the 12th team. Elijah went over to him and threw his cloak across his shoulders and then walked away. Elisha left the oxen standing there, ran after Elijah, and said to him, First, let me go and kiss my father and mother goodbye, and then I will go with you. Elijah replied, Go on back, but think about what I have done to you. Catch this. So Elisha returned to his oxen and slaughtered them. He used the wood from the plow to build a fire to roast their flesh he passed around the meat to the townspeople and they all ate then he went with elijah as his assistant so for our new people party today we're having roast oxen to celebrate <laughs> and no one's gonna be there no we're not doing that we're not doing that there's a couple of this is a little insider baseball for a second but there's a couple of rules that I was taught in Bible college that preachers should not do when it comes to preaching the Bible. And I'm going to tell you what they are to try to show you I'm attempting to not do those things, but if you think I am, let me know, okay? One rule is don't psychologize the people in the Bible. So sometimes we want to superimpose the way we see the world on the way the people in the Bible see the world. You can't interpret the Bible that way. That's really a hard part of interpretation is you have to get into an ancient mindset to really understand some of what or a lot of what the Bible's trying to say and then find ways to apply it to our culture. So what I don't want to do is put a 21st century mindset on people in the Bible because that's not how they would have thought and it would be an incorrect way to interpret the Bible and preach the Bible, okay? The second no-no for pastors that I learned, the second big one is to not allegorize everything in the Bible. Things in the Bible mean what they mean. So what I don't, to try to make a grand spiritual point, sometimes preachers are tempted to, well, and it seems like that's what I'm doing today, but I'm trying to draw parallels, not allegorize, okay? So again, I'm, I'm, I know I'm on a tightrope today, so I'm being transparent with you, but what, what we don't want to do when we read the Bible is, well, this thing means this other thing. Or like everything, like a lot of times when Jesus would tell a parable, sometimes he would tell you what stuff meant. So that's what the stuff means. It doesn't mean it has to mean other things to go, oh, no, but I had this breakthrough thought from God. Well, that's not what Jesus told you what that meant, and it's not what that is. So that's maybe a different spirit, but it's not God's spirit telling you what that means. 
So we don't want to um, psychologize or allegorize, so I'm, I'm attempting not to do that here at all or with this particular thing. But I do think what Elisha does here with fire is really important and can be instructive. And I think there is an indirect parallel to Acts that we'll talk about. So again, Elijah finds his successor, Elisha. He takes his mantle of authority, of anointing, of power. He throws it on him, and then he runs away. <laughs> Without saying a word, he's communicated so much. And Elisha knows exactly what's happened. He knows not only has Elisha, Elijah commissioned me to be his successor, but the mantle means that God has called me to be Elijah's successor. That's Everything has now changed for Elisha. He's just plowing his field, da, 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 and then all of a sudden his life changes. God's called him to be the next prophet. So he goes to Elijah and says, hey, I just want to say bye real quick, and then we'll be on our way. He's ready, right? But what he does is important. And I almost missed this. I, can, I read back over this story this last week, and I was like, whoa, there's fire right there. I almost totally missed it. What does he do? Elisha goes back, he says bye to mom and dad and the neighbors, but he takes his cart, his plow, and with it starts a fire that then he roasts his oxen with. So what he's doing here for Elisha, fire meant total commitment to the cause. Like, I'm, I've just burned my way of life. I've burned my part of the business. I've cashed in my stocks. Like, I'm all in here. There's no turning back. There's no plan B. There's no quit. There's no retreat. For Elisha, fire for him meant total commitment. There's a story that you may have been familiar with. It's over 400 years ago. Um, the explorer Hernan Cortez, when his, uh, he had about 11 ships that sailed from Europe uh, to Mexico, and as they're getting on the shore to start exploring uh, Mexico, he gives them, as they get off their boats, he gives them one more command. And the command is to burn the ships. We're, on, we're in this foreign land. We don't know what's ahead of us. We don't know what's going to happen. The first command from the leader of the expedition is to burn the ships. Same thing Elisha does here. It's a sign of commitment. This is not like a plan B. Ministry is not a plan B. I might do this other thing if ministry doesn't work out. I heard that so many times uh, growing up. As I asked that, you know, what's your backup plan? I don't have one. I'm qualified to do nothing else except for what God's called me to do. I have no other skills, okay? I'm not Liam Neeson and Taken. I don't have a particular set of skills. I do, but they're pretty limited to what I'm doing right now. So there's no plan B for this guy, okay? So, but that's what Elisha does. He burns the plow. He burns the oxen. He's totally committed. So the fire that comes in Acts 2, again, the parallel is not in that moment, but it's from that moment on. The parallel is so clear to Elisha. The, the followers of Jesus here and then the ones that would come through Acts are committed to the cause. They're committed to their Savior. They give their lives for the cause in many cases. Of the 11 original apostles after Judas from Jesus, 10 of them are killed. They're martyred for their faith. The 11th one, John, who wrote John some letters in Revelation, they tried to kill him. He just wouldn't die. So they exile him to an island when he's in his 90s. And that's where he has this revelation of Jesus. So they're committed to 
the cause. They're committed to their Savior. They're willing to give up their jobs, their relationships, their families, and their lives for the cause of Christ. It all started on that day in Acts 2 where the fire came down. It was that commit, the call of commitment that Elisha made that same decision, and they did as well. There's one final parallel from Elisha and Elijah that we'll cover for just a minute, and then we'll apply this to our day here before we close. So for some period of time after the mantle is sort of passed, Elisha follows Elijah. He is in his shadow all the time, day and night. Will not leave him, you know, he's there. There's even at the very end where Elijah says, hey, God's calling me to go to this other town. You just stay here. And Elisha's like, nope, I'm not leaving your sight, not for one second. So they move on to that town. Happens again, the next town, they're there. And, he, and Elijah says, hey, God's calling me to this other town. You just stay here. And Elisha says, I'm following you anywhere you go. And then a third time, each third time's a charm, right? He says, God's called me to go here. You just stay put. Elijah's like, I'm going with you. And so then as they're together, um, here, here's what happens. 2 Kings now, chapter 2, verse 8. We're going to read this one verse and just make a quick observation, and then we'll move on. Uh, so they're walking together. They get to the Jordan River, and here's what happens. Then Elijah folded his cloak together and struck the water with it. The river divided, and the two of them went across on dry ground. Now, that's just one verse. It's kind of like a throwaway verse because it just moves. It's just a transitional verse to where they're going to go to what's maybe a bigger deal. But I'm like, wait. So Elijah is so full of the power of God that him striking water and it splitting is just kind of a throwaway verse. Are you kidding me? Like, that's not a throwaway thing. We got to stop there and just think about what's happened here. This is the kind of power Elijah had, and Elisha has seen this. So now we'll move on to verse number nine. When they came to the other side, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me what I can do for you before I am taken away. Elisha replied, please let me inherit a double share of your spirit and become your successor. You have asked a difficult thing, Elijah replied. If you see me when I am taken from you, then you will get your request, but if not, then you won't. As they were walking along and talking, suddenly a chariot of fire appeared, drawn by horses of fire. It drove between the two men, separating them, and Elijah was carried by a whirlwind into heaven. Elisha saw it and cried out, My father, my father, I see the chariots and the charioteers of Israel. And as they disappeared from sight, Elisha tore his clothes in distress. So Elijah, before he's gone, makes one, he tells Elisha, hey, I'll give you one wish. He's like, you know, a third genie, I guess. Maybe he's a third, maybe if he did like, you know, his ancestry.com, he'd come up a third genie because he offers him kind of one final wish. What do you want? And all Elisha says is, I want a double portion of whatever you got from God. Now, you might look at that and say, well, that's pretty presumptuous of old Elisha here. I want, a d- like, I would ask for, like, if I could have, like, a tenth of what you got, I'd be fine. But Elisha's not content with that. And it seems an honest ask. Like, he's not trying to say, I'm going to be twice as good as you. No, he's just, he, he might even be saying, I need twice as much as you got because I am nothing like you. Like, you seem like this you know, Mount Rushmore of scripture kind of figure, and I'm an ox guy, like I'm a plowman. So I need, a, I need a double portion of what you got just to do half of what you did. And so Elijah says, if you see me when I go, it'll happen. And so then he sees him when he goes, this chariot and horses of fire take him away, but we don't quite know if the promise came true yet, do we? So let's read one more verse here, or two more verses. So after, just after Elijah leaves, Elijah is now kind of on his own. So what's going to happen? 
verse 13. Elisha picked up Elijah's cloak, which had fallen when he was taken up. Then Elisha returned to the bank of the Jordan River. He's like, well, I saw what Elijah did to get over here. Let's try it. He struck the water with Elijah's cloak and cried out, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? Then the river divided, and Elisha went across. The same thing, right? It it was sort of his first sign that the power that he asked for, something happened, because I could have done that five minutes ago, and now I look what what God just did, right? So uh, that's what we see here. And when you read later on in 2 Kings, it could be that there are just more miracles of Elisha recorded than Elijah, or it could be that what was promised to him came true. Because Elijah had a few kind of big sort of miracles that he had, but they were kind of interspersed with other life stuff. Elijah's like miracle after miracle after miracle. Let's raise this dead person. Let's cure this town's water that's poisoned. Like, let's do all these, like, you know, all these kinds of things. Even after Elisha's dead, he brings someone back to life. Did you know that? So Elisha's buried in this plot, and there's this other sort of skirmish that happens where this other person's been killed. This dead person is kind of just thrown into this pit where Elisha's bones are, and the man, when he touches, the dead man, when he touches Elisha's bones in the grave, comes back to life. I can't explain that. I'm just saying only God's power could do something like that. The power was so into Elisha, even his dead bones gave a dead man life. I think it's pretty incredible. So this is the the last uh, parallel that we see here is this this empowerment that Elisha had. We see that the church has. There's a verse I want to read as we begin to wrap it up here and then apply, and that is Jesus says this. Let's just read it. In John 14, verse 12, Jesus says this to his disciples. I tell you the truth. This is, again, Jesus talking. Anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done and even greater works because I'm going to be with the Father. That's kind of like what Elijah and Elisha experienced here. I want a double portion. Jesus tells his disciples, you will do greater works than I did because I'm going to the Father. Now, that's a tricky one. That's tricky. Because what happens is, and here's, here's I think, the best way to kind of see how that's lived out in Acts. None of the followers of Jesus were greater than Jesus. None of the followers of Jesus were more powerful or more anointed than Jesus Christ was. But when he says greater works, there were more of them. There's one Jesus. There's more of them that multiply the works. So you can see greater in terms of number of works able to be done. That's definitely fulfilled in the book of Acts and even beyond. In the same way, Jesus only ministered in about a 200-mile radius over a three-year period. That was it. Now, he had a great impact, obviously, in that short time, in that short space. But his disciples did greater works in that they went to the ends of the earth, in that their works that they did still ripple to this day. The same church that was started then that had power then, as we sang this morning, still has power today. And it's the same works that they did that they just did Uh, in a wider span for a longer period of time. But the key in that verse is he says, you're going to do greater works because I'm going to the Father. And what did Jesus do when he went to the Father? He sent the Holy Spirit. That was the same thing. Jesus was anointed by God, the Scripture says, to do good works, but then the disciples needed that empowerment too. They needed that anointing too. They needed the Holy Spirit in a greater measure than Jesus ever did, just like Elisha and Elijah to do those great works. 
let's close here and for just a minute and say, well, so what? I mean, that's a great history lesson. I appreciate the survey of fire in the Bible. What does that mean for me? Here's what that means for us. We have, I'll say this probably several times in our time in Acts, we today have the same access to the same Holy Spirit that anyone in the Bible ever had. Which means that these parallels can apply to us in the same way. Here's what I mean by that. The, here's what the Holy Spirit wants to be in your life as we close. The Holy Spirit wants to be your legitimacy of what God is doing in your life and through your life. Romans 8:16 even says that the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So the Holy Spirit, first of all, is that introduction to legitimacy, that you are a Christian, you are a follower of Jesus, you are sealed by the Holy Spirit, you are a child of God, and then it's also an assurance of the work that God is doing in you and through you. The other things that he's leading you to do, it's all because of the introduction of the Holy Spirit into your life. It's all because of the working of the Holy Spirit through your life. It brings this legitimacy to what God's doing. The Holy Spirit wants to be your guidance as you follow Jesus, as you make a difference, not just for the people in the Bible, but for you, for me. Just like he never left them, he'll never leave you. Just like he guided them, he will guide you. You can trust him. You can follow him. He will guide you where he wants you to go to do what he wants you to do. The Holy Spirit wants to be your protection. Sometimes this is preventative. There are times that the Holy Spirit will protect you from something. Sometimes we don't even recognize what that is. Sometimes we don't even see what we're protected from because it didn't happen. But the Holy Spirit's always at work in that way. And sometimes he is preservative in his protection and over us. Sometimes we do endure certain things, but the Holy Spirit helps us to endure them. Sometimes we meet obstacles and opposition, but the Holy Spirit helps us to persevere through those obstacles and through that opposition to God's expected end. He wants to be your protection. The Holy Spirit wants to be your reminder of your commitment to Jesus. Just like the apostles, just like Elisha, the Holy Spirit is going to be in your corner just saying, don't quit. Keep it up. You can do it. I am with you. Don't cave to the pressure. Don't get too tired. Don't stop what you're doing. It seems like you're spinning your wheels. You're getting frustrated. I'm with you. The Holy Spirit wants to be that reminder of your commitment. And then finally, the Holy Spirit simply wants to be your power for you to do what God wants you to do. Because here's the thing. God wants to use you to do things that are beyond you. It's going to take the Holy Spirit's power to do that. God wants you to do things in supernatural ways that you're not capable of. It's going to take the power of the Holy Spirit to do that. So I believe that your words will encourage on a supernatural level. I believe that your prayers can bring healing in certain people's lives. I believe that your actions can change certain things, but it's not your power, is it? It's the Holy Spirit's power working through you. We have to have this. We have to have the power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives, and that's what he wants to be for us. Uh, maybe kind of a different sermon today. Um, I, I don't know, but I believe these parallels don't just fit Old Testament, New Testament, but I believe that these parallels are powerful for us to fulfill God's plan for our lives here and now to make a difference where we are. Let's pray. God, today we thank you 
as we thank you for Jesus in our time of communion, we thank you now for the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the gift that Jesus sent the Holy Spirit and that he sent him in Acts 2 and weird things happen and we'll talk about some more of those, but really what it comes down to is these parallels that we've discussed today. The Holy Spirit wants to be our legitimacy, that we are really called by God, that we are really commissioned by him, that we are really saved by him, that we belong to him. He is our legitimacy. The Holy Spirit wants to be that. He wants to be our guidance to lead us wherever we go, to do whatever he's called us to do. He will guide us and direct us down the path of life to get us where he wants us to go. I think that the Holy Spirit is going to be our protection, our provision, Sometimes he will prevent things from happening to us. He will thwart attacks of the enemy against us. But sometimes he will just simply bring us through difficulty, bring us through challenges, bring us through dark times, bring us through our own doubts and insecurities. The Holy Spirit is our protection. So may we remain committed to the cause. May we, as the scripture says, not grow weary in doing good. For if we don't give up, we will reap a harvest Sometimes it seems like it's slow going. Sometimes it seems like there's no results or little results. But help us to focus simply upon the Holy Spirit leading us, guiding us, and empowering us to do what he wants us to do. That's all we can do is to simply follow you, trust in you, put our faith in you, and say, God, what do you have for me? Holy Spirit, where do you want me to go? What do you want me to say? What is your plan for my life? What is your plan for this week? What is your plan for tomorrow? What is your plan for this afternoon? Holy Spirit, direct us, lead us, guide us, empower us, protect us as we walk the path of life led by your Spirit. And you'll never lead us astray. You'll never fail us. You'll always be there. And so we thank you for your constant power and presence in our lives to make a difference. In Jesus' name, amen.